Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to the final episode in this current run of Compliance Clarified. My name is Alexander Robson, Managing Editor of Regulatory Intelligence here in London. And joining me today is Helen Parry, Senior Regulatory Intelligence in London. And we're here to discuss Credit Suisse and Contingent Convertibles, otherwise known as COCO bonds. UBS rescued Credit Suisse last weekend in a forced merger. Regulators took what some saw as an irregular move to write down 16 billion Swiss francs of Credit Suisse bonds, known as additional tier one or AT1 debt, to zero. Under the deal, holders of Credit Suisse AT1 bonds will get nothing, while shareholders, who usually rank below bondholders in terms of who gets paid when a bank or company collapses, will receive $3.23 billion. The news hurt 81 bonds issued by other European banks, and they came under fresh selling pressure. Cocoa bonds act as shock absorbers if a bank's capital levels fall below a certain threshold. They can be converted into equity or written off. They are the riskiest type of bond a bank can issue, and so carry a higher coupon, in Credit Suisse's case, up to 9.5%. If 81s are converted into equity, this supports a bank's balance sheet. They also pave the way for a bailing, or a way for banks to transfer risks to investors and away from taxpayers if they get into trouble, according to rules that policymakers passed after the 2008 financial crisis. In Switzerland, the terms of the bonds stipulate that in a restructuring, the regulator is not obliged to stick to the traditional capital structure which has felt bad news for Credit Suisse bondholders. It has also raised eyebrows among other regulators. Helen, this has shone an interesting light on how regulators operate post-financial crisis. The triggering of a complete write-down of the nominal value of all Credit Suisse 81 debt has shocked investors. But why is this the case? Yes, well, after the financial crisis, there was great concern amongst the regulators of, of the world that depositors shouldn't suffer and that taxpayers shouldn't suffer, but investors should suffer. And they created all sorts of structures to try and make this happen and various types and categories and tiers of of equity and an order in which they would suffer losses first in, in the event of insolvency, liquidity problems and other distress that banks might that might suffer. And the normal the normal one, which is in the regulation, in the capital requirements regulation, and it's in UK uh, rules, is that equity, which is called tier one, which includes equity and some other things like cash and some intangible assets, is normally the first to go and the first to suffer a loss. After that, there is this category of additional tier one, which some cocos fall under. And that is then the next one to go. And then there is tier two, which has different um, triggers and so on to um, the tier one. So there is a there's a pecking order. And of course, people were expecting the shareholders to not be protected and to go first. But in this case, they didn't. And there was surprise. I mean, the, the fact that legally they could have done it didn't mean to say that they would necessarily have done it. But the Swiss authorities for reasons which is not clear, at least it's not in the public domain as to why, they had the power to do it and they did do it. There is an ordinance which says that they can mandate the write-down. 
of contingent convertibles in the event of, um, for example, um, a viability event when the the institution is in such distress that it needs, you know, infusions of capital from, for example, the Swiss National Bank and, and, and government guarantees and so on. So although it was clear that it could be done if you read the terms of the bond and if you read the terms of the Swiss law, it was unusual in the great scheme of things because normally people expect the um, equity level, the tier one, to go the equity, what they call common equity tier one, to go first. And um, can cocos be sold to retail investors? Well, they used to be able to be sold to retail investors. In fact, if I was reading actually the other day a, a cocoa primer published by the Bank of International Settlements in 2013, where they said that initially retail investors were very enthusiastic, took it up very enthusiastically. And in fact, the very first cocoa that was issued in the UK by Lloyds Bank, lots and lots of litigation came as a result of it because it was massively missold and was very misleadingly missold to retail investors. And this led to a prohibition on the sale of contingent convertible investments to retail investors. In 2014, the Financial Conduct Authority prohibits the sale of such instruments to retail investors. A recent cocoa write-down took place in the case of the UK subsidiary of Silicon Valley Bank, which, you know, the weekend before the merger of Credit Suisse and, and UBS. But in, in, in what way did this case differ from, from that one? Well, this was um, done in a more traditional way, um, as we do under our, our rules, in that all the equity was completely wiped out. I mean, there was a, a nominal, they called it... Um, it was a, not a symbolic transfer for one pound, but it basically it was written down. So was the the, the the cocos were also written down to zero. So, but the shareholders were not protected. That was why the Swiss case was so startling in a sense, in that the shareholder level was protected, but not in the case of um, Silicon Valley Bank UK. And was the uh, Silicon Valley Bank case uh, similar to an earlier example involving Banco Popular? Well, with Banco Popular, it was basically forced into a, a relationship with Banco Santander. But in that case, all of the um, level tier one equity capital was completely written down to zero, as was all of the tier two additional you know, the cocoa category level was also written down. So again, the equity guys were not protected in the Banco Sandander case. Um, the T2 in that case was not written down, but converted into new Banco Santander shares, but for a euro. So again, it was it was nominal. So they weren't protected. Again, the shareholders in the Banco Sandander case were not protected um, in the way they, they were they were first in line, as is the normal um, European regulatory position. I mean, but that case did go to the European Court of Justice. There were complaints um, that there was misleading provisions in the prospectus with regard to some of these bonds, but they, the the case was lost. The um, the write downs were upheld in the in the European Court of Justice in that case, but it was more in the traditional order of priority. But in fact, in 2013, ESMA issued a paper in which they warned that there could be a risk of the traditional the traditional order being 
not upheld in certain cases, which had involved what they called high trigger um, cocos. Um, and in fact, the cocos that um, were involved were involved in in the credit squeeze were very high trigger in the sense that they talk about, you know, the, the trigger amount, which refers to the um, tier level capital ratio, which is the amount of tier level capital divided by the risk-weighted assets, which is, for example, the loan book will have a certain risk-weighted asset and will be multiplied by that as a percentage. And then you get a ratio. If you've got a high trigger cocoa, they will be, the loss-absorbing characteristics will be triggered when there's a, a high ratio, 7%, in fact, um, in most of the cocos in terms of the trigger events. So they were high trigger cocos. So people should have been aware that there were some categories of high trigger cocos that to which this could happen. But perhaps because it hadn't happened, that people had forgotten this, or I don't know, but it it was it did come as a bit of a shock. And the bondholders and possibly the shareholders may, may be planning to sue because there may be bells and whistles to do with how the the um, authorities have interpreted the actual ordinances that cover you know, the um, resolution procedures and, and so on. There may be bells and whistles that haven't been, maybe boxes haven't been ticked, um, but we'll have to wait and see if there, if there is any litigation, and if so, how it goes in the end. But certainly when, with Banco Popular, they, they lost at the ECJ. The Bank of England and regulators in the UK were very quick to issue statements saying that this is not what would happen here. So what lessons do you think we can learn from this? Well, the Bank of England was very quick after the news of the Credit Suisse merger came came about, and the share and the, the the news that the shareholders had been protected to the tune of over three billion Swiss francs. I think they are about worth the same as a euro at the moment. The Bank of England came out very quickly with um, um, a press statement to the effect that we wouldn't do that here; that we will not be doing that. We have our rules, and equity definitely will go first. So I don't think there's any. They were very quick to reassure the market because the market for cocos, obviously, after the Credit Suisse news broke, um, obviously that created problems for the market because people wanted to get rid of them because they hadn't realised really what the small print said. The, the trouble is that this stuff is always in the small print and sometimes it's even in the big print, but people don't quite realise it until something goes wrong. But, um, I mean, the, the European authorities also... Um, central prudential and banking authorities issued joint statements also saying that under the capital requirements re- regulation equity does go first and this isn't this will not happen you know so they did go make some go to some lengths to try and reassure the market that this was not the this was relatively an unusual case so caveat emptor absolutely absolutely helen thanks for your thoughts today we'll leave it there thank you Until the next time in the next series, which will start in May. Goodbye. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.